Good morning. Um, I have to tell you, um, first of all, I loved, I, I complimented Gay, the, the visual behind the music. Um, it's known as a rose window, stained glass. And I thought back to when I was in, living in DC in the National Cathedral, which is this awesome Romanesque building. Um, and when I used to work at the Capitol, I, I went there one time and got a private tour of all the behind the scenes type thing because they were building it as they had the money. Um, they have this one window, it's not the rose window, which is usually over the entry, like at Notre Dame in, in Paris that burned. Um, but they have a side window that's called the moon window because it has an actual piece of the moon rock in it. And then all these beautiful blue universal type images in it. Um, and I have to tell you, um, my, the, the other church I go to, St. Thomas Beckett, used to have this practice for Epiphany. Um, it was when the wise men came, so we were told that's when you can, um, you put away, you put aside one gift um, for everyone um, till the wise men come because they came bearing gifts. Um, and our three kids grew up, when they grew up, um, got way too wise of this way too quickly. So they'd go through all their gifts. First of all, they'd segregate them by the name, and then they'd feel the gifts. And the, the ones they figured were either socks or clothes, they'd put, a, put aside for the next two weeks because that one they didn't need to know right away. They wanted to open all the other stuff. So anyway, nice intention, didn't work out that well, but at any rate. Um, my name is Paul Mandel, I'm part of the volunteer preaching team, and my wife Lisa, uh, who is on the worship arts team and the baby church and the church council, and I have been coming here since the third week that River Heights existed back when we were in Simile High School, or as Lisa likes to say, longer than anyone that's not named Marsden. Um, we are now into the second month of our Bible reading plan, um, sometimes called a lectionary when the mainstream churches use it, and it covers most of the, much of the Bible over a three-year period. In general, such a plan includes an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a New Testament reading from one of the letters, and then one of the four Gospels. And today I'm going to touch on three of the four. Um, at this point, I would pray that here that the, the Spirit of God speaks to each of us here today through either one of the readings or the message I share, placing in our hearts a greater hunger to know God and to love our neighbors. So uh, starting with Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, addressing one of the many issues and concerns he had for that community. Corinth was a city on a key trade route for those between, traveling between north and south parts of Greece, and also a strategic port in Mediterranean commerce. As an urban center and crossroads for many, it was an extremely diverse population, but it was prone to feeling above those in the rural or countryside, and possibly what happens here when people compare people in the metro area of Minnesota to the people in greater Minnesota. Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about their perception, or if you will, their pride in the abundance of gifts. Paul listed many of the gifts of the Spirit, attributing value to each and every one of them. The gifts of the Spirit, though, which are not to be confused with the fruits of the Spirit, like joy, peace, and patience, um, are usually numbered between seven and nine, and are mentioned most clearly in Galatians, where the list includes prophecy, discernment, healing, wisdom, faith, words of knowledge, 
speaking in tongues or unknown languages and the interpretation of tongues. However, one of his key points was that the gifts were not due to any merit of theirs, but freely given according to the one and only Spirit. Secondly, he wanted to make a point that the value of each gift is measured in how the use of that gift collectively contributes to the health of the community at large. Corinth was plagued with divisiveness, with some professing allegiance to Paul and some to Apollos. But Paul wanted to redirect all to see only Jesus due to his passion, death, and resurrection. And for Paul, the real test of the gift is measured in how it builds the community based on love. Now, I am currently halfway through what they call the School of Kingdom Ministry, or SOCOM for short, here at River Heights Vineyard. It's a program of many classes designed to help individuals discover their various blessings or gifts and how to use them to improve their faith walk as well as building up their local church community. Now, I can tell you that the concerns expressed by Paul for the Corinthians, namely the divisiveness and the pride in possessing those spiritual gifts, is not applicable to our merry little group. We are very aware that it is not by any merit that we receive any of these gifts, but only through the Spirit, and that all should be freely shared with others, just as they are freely given to us, all for the building up of the community. And I'm going to read the entire passage of 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11, starting with verse 4. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another, and to, an and to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. The Spirit gives one person the power to perform miracles, and another the ability to prophesy. The Spirit gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. And still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit that distributes all these gifts, but that Spirit alone decides which gift each person should have. And Paul wanted to convey the importance of seeing that all gifts were merely a means to an end, the end being the building up of the community. That community, when blessed, might experience something called agape love, an unconditional love where everything, including even the Eucharist, is shared with everyone in the community. But that is addressed more fully in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. For those unfamiliar with the term Eucharist, it refers to that part of the Last Supper when Jesus took the bread and the wine, blessed it, and presented it as his body and blood to be shed for all humankind. That, commemorative, that commemoration of the Last Supper is central to most all Christian worship, 
for some done in memory of the one event, for others a sacrament where due to a particular set of prayers and blessings, the bread and wine are made body and blood to be received. Paul points to the gift of tongues, again, the speaking in unknown languages as first experienced at Pentecost and accounted for in Acts, is, which itself can be of value, but greater yet if there is one blessed with the gift of interpretation of tongues. Then that gift can help the community directly with either words of encouragement, correction, or direction, all from the one spirit. It reminds me of the saying from the 90s, if not earlier, it takes a village, referencing that benefit gained from intergenerational or communal wisdom, care, and support. The other half of this chapter talks about how the various parts of the body all work together for the greater good, but only if each part serves its expected purpose. It also reminds me of the song by John Lennon and Paul McCartney of the Beatles, I Get By With a Little Help from my friend. For myself, I think back to the weekend I was part of the sandbagging crew that worked in Stillwater, I think in the mid-90s, when the St. Croix River was overflowing its banks. It was one of those early spring thaws after a winter of heavy snow, and the river was threatening to flood downtown Stillwater. A call was made on all the news stations for volunteers, so I spent my Saturday and Sunday standing shoulder to shoulder with hundreds of others dressed for winter but prepared to get wet. We formed lines and helped build up the levels of sandbags for the temporary dike holding back the rising water, while trained construction crews with heavy equipment created a more substantial retaining wall just shy of the downtown buildings most threatened should the dikes be overrun. Again, all working together to protect the community. Now, looking back over my own long and varied faith journey, it started with my twin brother and I, Peter, serving as altar boys back when the Mass was entirely in Latin. Fast forward past four great years at St. Anselm's College, a Bennington-run school in New Hampshire, and then a year of work there, and then close to a year serving as a staff on a presidential campaign, I took a very memorable cross-country trip. And after that, I was a Bennington monk at St. Anselm's, think like St. John's here in Minnesota, for just over a year and a half. That's me and my abbot. That was about 40-some-plus years ago. This, um, that time in the monastery included daily time spent in what they call Lectio Divina, and the liturgy of hours from four in the morning until eight in the evening, as well as some deeply spiritual times of prayer with God showing up at the times when I most needed him. For those unfamiliar with Lectio Divina, it's a traditional monastic practice now commonly used on many retreats that includes sacred readings either from scripture or other sources, meditation, and prayer by an individual intended to deepen your walk with God. Liturgy of Hours itself is a monastic practice that regulates each day for the life of a monk consisting of five to seven different periods of readings, chant, using scripture and other sacred readings like the Desert Fathers, the Psalms, and other prayers done in chant or song by the community in their choir stalls. It was a life of prayer and work, or in Latin, ora et labora, 
according to the rule of Benedict, where much of your daily routine was done in silence, unless you worked at the college, except for the five to seven times when the community gathered for prayer. I experienced both highs and lows and moments of great joy and times of great deep despair, but gained so much and received a great deal during my time there, and most importantly, into the insights of what the meaning of community is all about. It was after leaving the monastery, however, when I ended up working in Washington, D.C., and one day I decided to join a friend from college at his church. At one point, most everyone broke into spontaneous prayer, which left me convinced I had made a mistake coming to that church, feeling very much out of my comfort zone. So I started praying to God for help. Now suddenly, what was coming out of my mouth in a very loud voice did not match what I was thinking or praying. And it wasn't English or Spanish or French, which then resulted in a huge smile and a thumbs up from my friend. And we've all heard the scripture saying, seek and ye shall find, and knock and the door will be opened. But the first phrase from Matthew 7, 7 is, ask and it shall be given to you. Well, I wasn't even asking, at least I didn't think so. I knew what I wanted, but quite possibly, I did not know what I needed. That was more than 45 years ago, and it's only gotten better since then. These days, I can sometimes shift into tongues at some of the oddest times, including even my, during my three to five mile run on Saturday mornings. A few years later, after leaving my job to finish grad school full time at the University of Virginia, I heard about a charismatic prayer group that was meeting at our campus Catholic Church. Arriving a bit late, I found about 10 others deep in silent prayer, so I quietly took a seat. On finishing, they welcomed me and asked me to introduce myself, after which they informed me that they had been praying for weeks for a new leader, as their previous one had graduated that summer. And then they proceeded to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for my arrival. <laughs> Who was I to question or figure out how God was working in my life. And maybe some of you can think back to some point in your life when something you chalked up to coincidence might just have been God showing up. And speaking of prayer answered and how often God moves mysteriously in our midst, our gospel reading today from the second chapter of John's gospel is the story of the Cana wedding feast. And I'll read through that passage John 2, verses 1 to 11. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother said, told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing, near, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instruction. 
When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first miracle Jesus revealed in his, in, this was the first miracle, was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, interestingly enough, John's gospel was the only one to cover this story. John, unlike the others, shared few of the miracles that Jesus made and the others were recorded, seven in total, including only the, the, the healing of the official son, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus. John was also different in that he often used metaphor or figurative representation to tell the more mystical truths of Jesus' life, often in a more solemn way, speaking to both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. John used the story, John's use of this story can help to serve to cross-reference the feeding of the multitudes and, looking back, hints at the promise of great abundance at the feast when the Messiah comes triumphantly. As, recalling, as recalled in Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11, Amos 9, 13 and 14, Isaiah 25 and 6, 25, verse 6, Psalms 104, and today's Psalm 36. In Jesus' time, wedding feasts were a huge thing for the entire community, and no one ever turned down an invitation. The bride's parents were of a higher standard than the groom, so anything short of a well-done celebration would be an embarrassment. Meanwhile, the local event planner or social critic was always quick to judge others and cast disdain for any failure to measure up. Mary, Jesus' mother, was a friend of the groom's was the friend of the groom's mother and had invited Jesus, knowing that he might well show up with more than just his plus one. Well into the wedding, which was known to last for sometimes up to three days, the wine for the feast had run out. Mary, on learning this, went to Jesus and told him the problem, simply expecting him to do something to help. He said, woman, why is that my problem? Now Mary came to Jesus merely hoping he would take responsibility to fix the situation. In calling her woman, John indicates that Jesus, having grown up now, and with Joseph having died, the man of the family, is now in a different relationship with his mother. John only mentions Mary twice in his gospel, once here at Cana and the second time at Calvary during the crucifixion. He also uses that term as a greeting with the woman at the well, and with Mary Magdalene that morning outside of the tomb. He then said to Mary, my time has not yet come. And on that, trusting Jesus, she simply told the servants, do whatever he says. Now, if one watches this scene in the miniseries called The Chosen, there's a great deal of artistic license. Thomas, the future disciple, and his, and his business partner's um, daughter are the wine stewards and they're in trouble when the supply of wine, of wine runs out. In the film, Jesus is actually shown to the room where there are six large jars 
holding the water already, more than five times the amount of the wine that was brought in for the feast. He asks everyone to leave the room, and then once he's alone, he looks up to heaven and he speaks to the Father, and then places his cupped hands into one of the jars and smiles as he brings out clear red wine. On a side note, I found in my research for this passage a note from an unknown source that says, the water saw its creator and blushed. On Jesus' instruction, Thomas, his partner, drew a flask from one of the jars and gave it to the servants to take to the event planner, while Thomas stood awestruck watching Jesus, with Jesus inviting him to join him and travel with his disciples. The scene then flips to the tasting of the drawn wine with the exclamation of how clearly, for the first time ever, this man has saved the best to last. Contrary to the regular practice of serving down watered-down wine once the wedding reception is into its second stretch, Mary and the others with Jesus simply looked on at this, his first miracle, recognizing that suddenly the ministry of this 30-plus-year-old teacher had taken a major turn. At this point, I would only pray that God of Revelation, you made your son known at a wedding feast, a public celebration of love. And I ask you to celebrate love with us by revealing Jesus in our midst. John uses this, Jesus' first miracle, to relate to and hint at the deep implications of how Jesus now replaces human rituals, the cleansing water, with the divine sacrifice, wine being symbolic for the blood. Likewise, John hints at Jesus being that divine sacrifice, with Jesus, the new bridegroom, and the Eucharist, as it's called in certain faith traditions, comprised of the bread, Jesus' body, and the choice wine served last, his blood. He also uses the wedding feast which was of great importance back in those days, as a sign of God's abundant blessings, as I've already noted in the Old Testament. Looking at these two readings, we should all maybe pause and take in where God has shown up in our own lives, possibly a surprise gift that could change our lives forever, or something so subtle as a word from someone that touches our heart, possibly melting away a hurt, or transforming a long-held anger that then opens us up to a new relationship with another person and with God. Can you think back just over the past tumultuous year, both full of both highs and lows, and see maybe where God showed up in your life that you might have missed him? Do any of you today deeply yearn for or desire to receive one of the many gifts of the Spirit? or are looking for a way to, on how to use those gifts to the building up of the community, be it here in the church, in your, fa your own family, or the larger community? Do you need to have some part of your, your life transformed or changed? At this point, I would invite the worship team back up, and I'd ask if you can, if you would stand, um, and I would ask the prayer team, or those people who are on the prayer team, if you would, to come forward. If any of these questions, or today's readings, 
or my closing remarks about today's psalm touch something in you, I would invite you to come up and get prayer. As Mary did at the wedding, I'd invite you to feel free to take your needs to Jesus, humbly accepting whatever answer he might have for you. Trust, as one commentary noted, that in God's hands, the ordinary can become the extraordinary. I would also maybe extend an invitation to members of the SACM uh, group if you want to come forward to help with the prayer teams. Now, for today's tips, I'd leave you with three ideas. First, uh, read Psalm 36, verses 5 to 10, which I will be closing with. Secondly, pray for the insight to see where the Spirit might have blessed you with gifts that you might not have yet acknowledged. And third, take some time to journal and reflect on the number of ways God has shown up in your life. And allow me to reflect for one moment on today's Psalm 36 verses 5 to 10, acknowledging and asking that tomorrow we'll all take time to honor the life and work and the message of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., while also applying this to what you've hopefully heard today. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You feed them from the abundance of your own house, letting them drink from your river of delights. For you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see. Pour out your unfailing love on those who love you. Give justice to those with honest hearts. Thank you, and may God bless each and every one.